Well, after nearly 10 weeks in 1 Timothy, we come to its conclusion today. So once again, have those Bibles ready and we're going to look into finishing chapter 6 and really the entire letter of Timothy today. And what a letter it has been. Paul spent three chapters looking into sound doctrine, sound conduct and a godly leadership. He then spent over two chapters applying these principles and how we care for one another, how we honour the widow, how we honour our leaders and how we treat those in authority. In these final verses, we saw last week that Paul is really coming full circle back to his original teaching and he's going to return to the issue of false teachers, focusing on their inflated self-worth and their desire for money. And he shows how they've infiltrated the church and have laid waste to the three key principles of sound doctrine, sound conduct and a godly leadership. However, what we are going to see today is that Timothy was able to change it, not only by bold teaching of scripture, but by being an example of what is to be expected. As we go into these final verses from verse 11 onwards, we're going to see two distinct things. The first is a direct call to Timothy to be the leading example, the bold captain, the strong teacher before the church. Through Timothy honouring God, the church would return to holiness. The second, and with all that's been said, fundamental to the church is Jesus Christ, the one whom God has saved his people through. In what is known as a doxology, Paul is going to show us that if we have Jesus at the centre and we refuse to let him be knocked off that role, then the church will be on a firm foundation for the future. So we're going to jump into our passage. We're going to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and we're going to begin from verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness and gentleness. With verse 11 starting with the phrase, but as for you, Paul is contrasting the behaviour of the false teachers now with Timothy. And we get the impression before moving any further in the verse that in this simple phrase, Timothy is to be different from the false teachers caught up in their desire for money. Yet the next phrase, I believe, is even more striking. Paul describes Timothy as a man of God. And such a title was often used in the Old Testament. For example, Deuteronomy 33, it describes Moses. And subsequently after that, it then describes any individual who proclaims and preaches the word of God. So it's fairly common in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it is only used here to describe Timothy. And it's such a great honour for Timothy to have such a title bestowed upon him, yet it was a greater responsibility to have that title for this man of God is to proclaim the word of God and what is this man of God to do how is he about to go into ministry in this church in Ephesus without Paul well firstly he must flee these things by which Paul is referring to the love of money noted in verse 9 and 10 simply put if you're in ministry for the money then you are not God's man that doesn't mean we shouldn't pay when appropriate, but true servants of God do not seek after money. Yet fleeing such desires is not enough. The man of God runs away from a motive, but run toward other godly characteristics. He must run away and run toward simultaneously. He is to flee sin and pursue holiness. 
He is to run away from sin and he is to run toward holiness. And Paul gives us six things that the man of God is to pursue or to run toward. Uh, The first is righteousness, meaning to do what is right, to have a lifestyle of holiness. It's an outward expression seen in our actions and in our behaviours. Secondly, he's to pursue godliness. Right behaviour is going to flow from a right motive. We're to seek godly motives, which is the internal expression of holiness that is then seen in our righteous actions. Thirdly, we have faith referring to a confident trust in God for everything. It is unshakable and immovable. Then we have love, referring to agape love, the unrestricted and unrestrained love that the great commandment is based upon. It is the love of Christ flowing through our hearts. We then have steadfastness. We're to have an unwavering loyalty to Jesus. We stick to the task that he has set before us and we persevere through all trials and all persecution. And then we have gentleness, or in other words, kindness. We never stop being kind to one another. The man of God is to flee sin and then he is to pursue these six attributes. Without the both actions of running away and running toward, you become one that is hypocritical and ultimately ripe for Satan's picking. Verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and by which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Remember, Timothy has been left in Ephesus to pastor a church that has gone wayward in doctrine and in its behaviour. He was tasked by Paul to sort it out and he describes it as a fight. Now I want you to think of a boxer that trains for a fight. They're disciplined, concentrating on the win and focused to give every effort needed to have that win. We're not talking about a brawl or a fist fight at the end of an evening. We're talking about a discipline focused to battle against those who seek to bring the church down. It's described as a good fight, which is once again another word that we've seen before. Kalos, noble, good. It's the same word that's used to pursue eldership, to pursue leadership in the church. Here is to used, uh, is used to describe the good fight, the kalos, the noble fight that is for the faith. Now when we take the context of the entire letter, we see that faith is referring to the word of God and both our belief and our transformation that comes from scripture. Timothy is to get a grip on the things that are eternal, on scripture itself. And he's not only to focus on it himself, but he's leading the church to be resolute in these instruments of eternal blessing. Colossians 3.2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. As false teachers drag the church to consider money, self-interest and ego, they will use instruments for that purpose. They will seek to drag the church away. Yet the instruments that Timothy is to use is scripture and the eternal things to drag the church in the correct direction. This battle is a noble one, and it's one for a man of God. It's one that Timothy signed up for when he publicly declared his allegiance to Jesus. So now's not the time for him to give up. Now is the time for him to dig deep, to trust, and to fight hard. Verse 13. 
I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. These two verses are really a little bit unusual, for the commandment comes in verse 14, And verse 13 really is the motive or the run-up to the verse. And so what I want to do is I want to actually take these verses in reverse, if you will. Take verse 14 first. What is the commandment? Uh, Paul is likely referring to verse 12 with Timothy to fighting the good fight, to live out his calling to preach the word of God and defend its authority. Timothy had been commissioned to teach scripture and promote sound doctrine in the church, And he was to carry out this command in such a way that his life would be unstained and free from any reproach or questioning. There should be nothing, nothing at all that anyone could accuse him of, for the work of Christ must be his focus. And notice how long he's to keep this up, being above reproach, having an unstained work, having a focus on obedience to the command. Notice how long he has to do it for, until the Lord Jesus returns. This was Timothy's motive, to fight for truth, to fight for the gospel integrity that the the church so desperately needs, to fight for the church to be holy and godly, for Jesus is returning and the church better be ready. Acts 1.11, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is going to return and the church needs to be ready. Well, if we know the commandment now, which is to fight the good fight, and we also know the personal motive that Jesus is going to return, we can now go back to verse 13. Paul has commanded this of Timothy in the presence of two. The first being God the Father, who gives life to all things. The Father created, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The Father sustains, Acts 17.28, in him we live and move and have our being. And the Father protects, Psalm 56.11, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Timothy was to fight the good fight and have no concern over the earthly price to this faithfulness. His concern was to obedience before the heavenly Father. Yet the command was also given in the presence of another, that being Jesus. In fact, Jesus was the example that Timothy was to follow. He was once in a position where Jesus himself had to be bold in the face of persecution. And Jesus thought nothing of the earthly trial. Instead, he focused entirely on the eternal plan of God. Matthew 27, 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. Shortly after this point, Jesus was led to the cross and to his death. Timothy was to fight the good fight for the sake of gospel integrity, and he was to use Jesus as his guiding example. Let's move quickly into verse 15, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honour and eternal dominion. Amen. These two verses are known as a doxology, which is an expression of praise to glorify God. 
And the interesting thing about doxologies are they are rich in theology. And we start with a very simple truth. God will determine when Jesus will return. Mark 13, 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. In God's perfect timing, Jesus will return to take up the faithful in his name and lead them to eternity. Now notice how the timing of Christ's return is almost a footnote. It's mentioned, but it's not focused upon. What is more important than the timing of Jesus returning is Jesus himself. And just look at how Paul describes him. He is blessed, a wonderful word that describes one who is completely content, fulfilled and happy. They're 100% at peace and Jesus is the epitome of peace. If the world is described as chaos, then Jesus is described as complete calm. He is sovereign, ultimately meaning that Jesus, who is God, is the only one that has complete power. There is none that can rule over Jesus, for Jesus is the one that holds all power. He's the king of kings. Jesus wears the crown of glory. There may be kings and queens of the land, but Jesus is the one that they have to answer to. He is Lord of Lords. Nobody rules over Jesus. Nobody holds authority over Jesus. And Jesus answers to nobody else. He is the one in charge and he is the one that all others, even those in high positions, must answer to. He is immortal. God is incapable of dying and never decays or loses any quality of life. He is the life giver and there is never an end to the life that he possesses. He is light. So brilliant is the light of Jesus that we cannot approach. So consuming is this light that all we can do is fall on our faces and praise his name. And we're not talking about the torch with the brightness of a million candles or whatever the advert used to be. We're talking about a light that is so bright it makes our sun look like a torch that's losing battery. Jesus is the ultimate light. He deserves all honour. Jesus is always to be respected and always to be lifted high, for he alone deserves it. And finally, he deserves eternal dominion. The reign of Jesus will never end. It will never fail. It will never be brought down by Satan or any other agent. And we end this wonderful description and praise of Jesus with the word Amen, meaning so be it. This is the truth of Jesus, the truth that we unite under. This is the one we serve for and the one we fight for and the one that Timothy is to fix his eyes upon and never let his gaze be shifted off. And so considering this, considering this wonderful praise and adoration of Jesus, Paul has a few final instructions for both the church and for Timothy. Notice he's taking them to Jesus and now he wants to finally just bring a few more points before he leaves them. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The question is, who is rich? Anyone who has more than they need. And I want to say that again. I want you to really hear me now. The rich can be defined as anyone who has more than they need. If your bank balance is above zero at the end of the month, you are rich. If you have spare space in your house, your car, your garden, or if you have possessions that you have no use for, you are rich. 
The rich are not to be haughty or to be conceited or to have an exalted opinion of themselves or other lives. Rich individuals will have the temptation to look down on others and their circumstances. And I've heard it many, many times from those who are wealthy or those who have more than what they need, that poor people are poor because, well, they made bad decisions or because they don't work hard enough. And I would say in most cases, you could not be more wrong. Instead of judgment, the rich are encouraged to be humble, recognising that they have a phenomenal opportunity to serve others in need. The second warning, though, that Paul gives here is that rich individuals should focus on God rather than on their riches, which he defines as uncertain. Proverbs 11:28: whoever trusts in his riches will fall. Those who have a lot tend to trust in its security. Those with very little tend to trust God for security. When you do not need to worry about paying for a holiday or paying for a bill, then you don't tend to fall on your knees to seek the help of God. To trust, though, in your riches is folly, for they bring no security and instead they bring temptation to take your eyes off Christ. Now, instead of focusing our attention on our possessions and wealth, we're to focus on God, for he will provide everything we need in this life. And what joy that truly brings, for we do not worry if our salaries go up and down or our pensions go up and down or even if there's major change in our situation, for God will always provide for our needs. And what peace we find in the one who knows all things and provides all things. Again, look at the doxology, look at who Jesus is, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, immortal, the brilliant light. He is the one that we are to rely on for our needs not our earthly riches. Verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, just as they're not to focus on the riches and to focus on God, they can still instead use their riches for the sake of others. And the role of the rich believer, and again, what I mean by that is anyone who has more than what they need is to use their resources to meet the needs of others. They're to do good, and not just superficially looking good, but genuine goodness towards others. They're to go out of their way to do the good thing, and no cost should be considered. They're not to hoard their riches. Instead, they're to be rich in good works. They're to do good to others, even when it costs. Whether it's a voucher for a meal, new furniture, paying for a bill or giving a great gift, it's always going to cost you something. Yet this cost should never be considered. Instead, there should be an active effort to reduce the resources that you have that is more than what you need to help others who are in need. They are to be generous, to be liberal, to be bountiful in their giving. Not the bare minimum, not absolutely everything, but what can be defined as lavish blessing of generosity. And this is not a one-off absolute guilt giving to absolve you. This is a lifestyle to be seen every day. And why is Paul commanding this of those that are rich? Well, it stores up the very best fund of all the eternal reward in heaven. 
We want to invest in people, not stuff, because it's the people around you that you seek to bring to Jesus and for them to have the eternal reward through Christ. We therefore seek not more of this world or protection of our stuff, but more of Jesus in the life of others. And if we can use our plenty to help those in need and in turn bring them closer to Jesus, then we should be running to take hold of these opportunities. As Christ has richly and lavishly been generous with you in saving your soul, so you are to be rich in your good works, generous in your giving and lavish in your gifts towards others so that they would be drawn closer to Jesus and celebrate his name. Now a final instruction for Timothy, verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Timothy is to guard or protect the deposit given to him. He is to have a firm grip of his salvation in Jesus, of his calling to preach the word of God and his task to rid the church of false teachers. He is to avoid the doctrines that would take people away, that would bring endless empty chatter and that some would try and classify and call as knowledge. For as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.17, their talk will spread like gangrene. He is to avoid such debates and arguments and false doctrine for if he gets tangled in any of it he may end up losing his faith and swerving away from the truth and that really is a real danger to life and so this is Paul's resounding cry to Timothy and to the church through the grace of God stay true to Christ flee from sin and pursue godliness now, as we end our study through the letter of 1 Timothy, let me bring some applications that you can be considering this summer and over the next few weeks, not just from our passage today, but really the whole letter of 1 Timothy. And I want you to note this from MacArthur. How a person lives reflects what they really believe about God. We want our faith in Christ and in his word to shape our lives so we need to ask the question, what have we learned from 1 Timothy that can shape our lives in the immediate future so that our lives reflect what we believe in God? And here's three things I want you to consider, and I've said this summer because I think it's going to take time on some of these for you to think about. Here's the first one from today's passage. We fight for the sake of Christ. If you don't think it's a fight, then you're probably not in the fight. The church made up of gospel-believing and Bible-teaching Christians are under attack and are considering persecution on a daily basis from outside of the church and from inside. The society wants the church to give up on biblical beliefs and get with modern times. And sadly, men in the church want to do just that. Whether it be gender, sexuality, marriage, race, the family home or any other subject, the church is being persecuted for just about everything it stands for. And why should we be surprised? John 15 tells us the very words of our Lord Jesus tell us that the world will hate us for it hated him. So now is not the moment for quitting. Now is not the moment to toss everything aside and just go with whatever the majority says. Now is the moment to be a Timothy, to be loyal to Jesus, to get a grip of the eternal and to fix our gaze on Jesus, that awesome light. 
Now is the moment to pick up our Bibles as the sword and the armour of God and use it to defend the truth of Jesus. Now is the moment we dismantle silly arguments holding firm to the word of God. And now is the moment that we stand and be counted. And so the question I think 1 Timothy demands of us is will you be in the fight? Will you be in the fight? It can be awfully lonely standing here uh, declaring God's word. And I think if you ask any one of our leadership team how it feels to constantly serve Jesus, they're going to say it's exhausting, but it's worth it. And so will you join that fight? Will you stand for sound doctrine and sound conduct and godly leaderships? Will you live by example? Will you refuse to take part in any heretical, nonsensical opinion? Jesus doesn't need another half-hearted, lukewarm, apathetic, dead Christian. Jesus is looking for soldiers of the truth who will get in the fight, who will daily gaze on him, who will gaze on the beauty of Christ and who will see the eternal reward as worth it. So the question is, will you join the fight? And I hope you don't need the whole summer to figure out your answer. The second thing is that we're to generously give. And really, this is coming from our sermon today. And it's really clear in the passage that we, as the people of God, are to be known as those who are generous. Christ gave his life for us. And in our plenty, we are to generously give to others. Yet we often get generosity wrong. In fact, as Christians, I think we can often be quite stingy and rather than being generous. I'm reminded of some situations, and these are situations that really have come up through the years of ministry and through serving in different churches. I remember one leader in a church that I served in who runs a youth ministry, and he used to say that when you're bringing a drink to a youth ministry, you know, whatever uh, youth ministry is on, there's always food and juice and things. He says, bring whatever your children drink. If they drink high-end Robinsons, then bring Robinsons. Don't make it an add-on to your shopping and bring the cheapest drink you can find. The same ministry leader was often gifted random junk from people's kitchens for the youth to use. And his response was always the same. I don't want your cast-offs. Young people deserve what you use, not what you do not want. Generosity isn't giving the cheapest you can get away with or what you no longer want. Generosity is thinking what is the very best that you can give and doing so for the sake of others. I'm also reminded of a couple who whenever they go out and go through a drive through for food or a drink, they always pay the bill of the person behind them. Because generosity isn't always about the needs you know or even being known as someone that's generous. Generosity is a principle of life that looks for opportunities to bless others even when you don't know them. I'm also reminded of a Christian conference that I attended a few years ago where over a thousand church leaders were in attendance. And the encouragement was to be known as being generous, not being stingy. So when we take our breaks and we went out for lunch or drinks or whatever, when we're at a restaurant or at Starbucks during that break time, we're to be known as generous. And so the encouragement was that as Christian leaders, we should tip well and tip with a smile on your face. What a difference that would make to all other conferences who would attend when Christian leaders come together and they are known for being the most generous at restaurants and at cafes. You see, in just these three simple examples, generosity is a matter of life. 
It's not a one-off occasion, but it's a heart that is always looking to cover needs. And sadly, I believe, I think we have a lot of work to do here at LBC. There's still a massive divide, some really struggling and some with plenty. In fact, our own church finances are so secure that we have more than what we need. Yet we're not giving out nearly fast enough. As a leadership, we're endeavouring to change that. As Christ is generous with us, so we will be to others. And so we want to be known as a church with ridiculous levels of giving. We want the church to be known as a church where needs are met. Let us be known as a church that lets not one person or one family struggle. I think so often we hear this, well, if we help one, what happens if 10 comes that need help? Well, we'll help all 10. What happens if we have no more money to help? Well, God will bless us with that money to help. Why? Because we're gonna be known as the church that ridiculously gives, we're gonna be known as the church that covers needs, and we're gonna be known as the church that has received much from Jesus and so gives much out. The very best example I've seen of this is a man who once said this to me, and this was a few years ago. I will give you 300 pounds. 150 pounds is to cover your own needs. 150 pounds is to cover someone else's needs. So give it away and enjoy the blessing. That man is a generous man. That man is a man of God. That man sets the example of what each one of us should be known for, a generous and bountiful giving heart. So whether we're giving to a need, whether we're just wanting to bless somebody, or whether we need to think outside the box and get ridiculous in terms of our level of generosity, that is the church that I want us to be. Why? Because that's the church that God wants us to be. Number three, we serve in humility. And I think really this third point is the whole chapter, the whole book, the whole letter of 1 Timothy. We serve in humility. Timothy had a task of a lifetime. It was a noble task, a task that very few could and should take on. It was a task that would bring no thanks and little reward. Yet it was the task that Timothy was called to serve God in. We're not the ones though that dictate the task that is set before us. We cannot and should not demand what we want or the roles that we want or the, even the ways that we want to do it in. We serve King Jesus in complete humility. If it's our time to serve at the front, then we serve at the front. If it's our time to serve in the background, then we serve in the background. If it's our time to serve by being an example of what godliness through a trial or persecution is, then we suffer the trial for the sake of Jesus. You see, the humble heart says, whatever it is, God, I will do it for you. The humble heart does not look to credentials or sees oneself as important. Instead, the humble heart gifts God back their life and lets God decide what to do with it. So this summer, I would encourage all of us really to think about what it means to serve in humility, to understand that it might not be what we want or our skill, but it will be the calling of God. In September, we'll have a toddlers group, junior church, creche, a youth group, a refreshments team, a host team, a worship team, a sound team, a projection team, a buildings and maintenance team, a missions team, a finance team, and a whole host of other activities. So what is God calling you to do? Not what do you want to do, but where's God calling you to serve? And I want you to note, I didn't say, is God calling you to serve? Because the answer is yes. We should be serving wherever God wants us to serve. There is no option of not serving. The question is how 
and where. Over the summer, consider what God wants you to do. And more than that, do it. Send an email into the leadership to say, hey, I've been praying about this. And from 1 Timothy, I can see the desperate need for the church to have people who are humbly serving. Here's the areas I think I can help with. Use me if that's what you believe is right in this church. Because as the church, we should have no ministry team gaps. We're to be the church that has helpers and leaders for every activity. Because what does it look like to the unbeliever if they turn up to church and we say, and this is our response, thanks for bringing your kids to church to hear the name of Jesus, but there's no junior church this Sunday because our church doesn't want to serve in those teams. Should we not be responding, come in all families, whether you're young or old, because whatever you need, we serve you in because we want to give you the gospel. So we have a junior church team that gives the gospel to children. We have a youth team that gives the gospel to youth. We have a, a young adults team to give the gospel to young adults. We have Cameo to give the gospel to those that are older. We have our church service with AV and sound and host teams so that you can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And guess what? We also have a full complement of a missions team because we want the gospel to be spread across this world. Folks, this is what 1 Timothy is about. The false teachers being kicked to the curb so that those with gospel integrity rise up and serve the Lord in full humility. Friends, that's the end of 1 Timothy. That's the end of our series. And I hope and pray that it's been a challenge and it's been a blessing. The hard part starts now. Let us be the people of God, faithful and obedient to his word. Let us strive to be sound in doctrine, sound in conduct, and led by a godly leadership. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed thank you and praise you uh, for sustaining us through this nine, ten weeks through 1 Timothy. Father, we know that some of this stuff has been so hard for us to grasp. And Father, we pray that we'd be resolute in our sound doctrine, conduct and godly leadership. Father, we pray that we'd be known as a generous church that lavishly covers needs. And Father, let us not be a church that is stingy in our generosity or in our sharing of the gospel. Father, let us be your humble servants. Use us in mighty ways, Father. We don't want to be the apathetic, lukewarm church. We don't want to be the church that has nothing really going on. We don't want to be the church with no baptisms and no soul saved. Father, we want to be the church that you use in mighty ways for your kingdom. And Father, we, we don't want any thanks for it because we want the glory to go to Jesus. So Father, wring us dry. Use us in whichever way you will for the sake of Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.